This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 582. And the quote of the day is, believe in what you want so much that it has no choice but to materialize. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 582. And quickly, I just want to say thank you so much for all of the comments and the emails and the DMs about the Steve Jordan episode. I'm glad that everyone enjoyed it. That was a, a bucket list conversation for me, for sure. And having nearly two hours of Steve on the podcast was amazing. So thank you. I'm glad everyone enjoyed it. That Again, that was that was a great conversation. And I got another one for you with Clem Burke and Clem has an amazing story about wanting to be a rock star when he was a kid and achieving that dream in Blondie. And they started, he, he joined that band right when they started in 1975 and they grew to a mega, mega band and sold somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 million records and has done a slew of other things, worked with a ton of different artists and has played all over the world in stadiums, in amphitheaters, and even in some really small venues. And we talk about that as well. So an amazing story about a kid from Bayonne, New Jersey, who wanted to be a rock star and totally achieve that dream and much more and i'm not going to waste any more time let's get into it with the legendary clem burke clem how are you thanks so much for being here man hey nick thank you for having me it's a pleasure of course uh, happy to be uh on the podcast with you today well, I do, I do appreciate it. It's a bummer. We were just talking off air. We're both in LA. It would have been great to do this in person, but given the current circumstances, uh, thank God for the internet, right? Right. Well, it's almost like it was preordained that uh, we would have all this technology to get us through this uh, insane time in the world. It's almost like scripted. You know, first we have to make sure everyone can stay connected through the internet and through their phone in order for us to be able to cut everyone off from uh, human contact mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's pretty crazy it is pretty crazy yeah well, I, I don't even i can't even imagine what we what everyone would be doing right now without internet zoom calls all that kind of stuff like what are we going to mail people letters back and forth it's crazy yeah yeah totally nuts uh we were talking a little bit about about you growing up you grew up in bayonne which people don't realize how close that is to new york city like even when i lived in hoboken i said oh i live in hoboken new jersey and and people would say oh so you're in new jersey and i'm like yeah but i'm i'm i, I basically live in manhattan i got the best view of manhattan i'm so close to manhattan i could throw a rock and hit it um talk about growing up in bayonne and the influence of that you that New York City had on where you lived and and the music that you were listening to growing up. Yeah, well, you know, it's the the metro area. You know, pretty much all the media. You know, at the time, newspapers and uh, television, obviously, all kind of emanated from uh, from New York City. So you were really culturally exposed to a lot of the same things. I mean, the, at the time when I was a kid, AM radio was the big thing with. WMCA and WABC uh, playing the uh, the top forty, which of course was a mixture of everything from the 
the Beatles to Engelbert Humperdinck to the Rolling Stones to uh, Frank Sinatra, you know, so mm-hmm. really eclectic mix. And that kind of really is what shaped my uh, early uh, musical influences and uh, the sort of uh, versatility and the different songs that you heard on the radio and, you know, the, uh, the, the closeness to, uh, to New York City itself and to Manhattan was always uh, really convenient for me. And, uh, you know, I would travel back and forth on the bus and the train to uh, go into the city most times. You know, when I was a kid, I'd go to the Fillmore East and, you know, hang around Greenwich Village and things like that. It was very easy to do. And, uh, you know, it was really fortunate to be so close to, to New York City, actually very close to lower Manhattan, where it was mm-hmm. all on anyway. And I was going to say, what was the scene like in, in the village during that time? Well, I really came into, I mean, I was a, when I was going to the Fillmore East and, and places like that, I was really like, you know, I was a teenager and uh, really young. And, but, you know, later on, you know, the whole thing that happened in the mid-70s at CBGB's and Max's Kansas City was uh, really uh, very sort of underground, but was really kind of thriving. You know, it was a small group of people that were involved at the beginnings of the whole sort of uh, New York music scene that kind of turned into uh, this, uh, you know, CBGB's Max's Kansas City type thing that was going on. Um, you know, but I was able to, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, for instance, I had a a band, I've spoken about this before, my high school band uh, was called Total Environment with uh, four other people from from my hometown. And uh, we would listen to WABC radio, uh, Cousin Brucie, Cousin Bruce Morrow, and they would have this thing called Cousin Brucie's Big Break. And what you did was your band would uh, make a cassette tape and, and send it in. And the powers that be would listen to the cassette, but that's not what they broadcast. They decide whether or not you can go into a professional recording studio, which was the first time I was in a professional recording studio. I was like 14, I think. Mm-hmm. And we went to WABC, uh, the recording studios on uh, 6th Avenue in the 50s, maybe 58th Street. And uh, we recorded uh, a song. Actually, the song we did, it was pretty, uh pretty interesting choice at the time. It's a song called Something's Going On by uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Uh-huh. From the uh, first Blood, Sweat, and Tears album, the people know about that band, uh, they later run on and had the hits with a different lead singer. But at the time it was Al Cooper from a, a band that I was familiar with prior to that band called the blues project. We used to play at the clubs in Greenwich village. Uh, there's a song on there called something's going on, which is actually very kind of jazzy. And it was pretty ambitious for a group of uh, 14 year olds. And uh, so did you not have original, an original tune that you wanted to record? No, we weren't doing original songs then. It was really a, a it was kind of like a battle of the band situation, you know. Got you. Got you. And uh, so we went in and recorded the song at the studio, WABC Studios. And uh, we were picked to be one of the bands to uh, be in the finals. 
this is all because you know we were in the, in the New York metro area, so um, they they would have the uh, the finals. They would have like maybe a maybe a dozen or so bands at uh, a ballroom, say like at the Hilton Ballroom or something in in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. For some reason or other, that particular year, the, the finals, the so-called Battle of the Bands, was at Carnegie Hall. Nice. So I find myself at 14 years old playing Carnegie Hall. So uh, we didn't win, but we came in the finals. And uh, when I think back on that, you know, I, there was only, uh, you really only go down from there, from the Carnegie Hall. But I actually managed to go up from Carnegie Hall a bit later. <laughs> but uh, it was really funny because when the, the Blondie album, Parallel Lines, came out, I was with a couple of our other band members at, at WABC Studios. And I said, by the way, oh, funny enough, I don't know, I was about 21 at the time. So, you know, 10 years ago or seven, eight years ago, I was actually in this studio and I recounted the story about, you know, my band, my high school band, et cetera, Carnegie Hall. And after the interview, a guy comes out from uh, the studio, it's a technician, and goes, guess what? I was the tech on that uh, session. I recorded you and here's a copy of the tape. Get out of here. Honestly, so he gave That's me a awesome. real, real tape, which I have, and uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I couldn't believe it. It was kind of full circle. It's amazing how the world works sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you think about it, it was really only a, you know, at the time when you're a kid, that seems like such a long time. You know, it was under ten years. You know, but it's right. like, it seems like forever. But obviously, the the guy was whatever age he was when I did the recording and. Whenever it was 70, 1970 or something, and then you know, mm-hmm. he was still there. So yeah, that was an amazing thing. I I got the little little uh, tape box and everything, and it's, it's kind of a good memento to have. And uh, but 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 my point is, you know, I was able to do things like that, or go to the Fillmore East, and or just kind of run around Greenwich Village, you know, stand outside, you know, a blues club or you know the, the Village Gate or. And, you know, not being able, not being old enough to go inside, but I could hear the music, you know, coming out from, from the doors and uh, be exposed to a real great kind of mixture of uh, music, you know, because of mm-hmm. uh, growing up in Bayonne, New Jersey, which was, you know, half hour into the city with, with no traffic you could make it less than that. Right. So what do you think the difference is now versus then uh, the need to live in a music city like L.A. or New York or Miami or, or somewhere like I mean, I think then you sort of had to be. And if you and if you or if you were born there, you you grew up with a with a, a slight advantage over everyone else. But do you think it's as necessary now to live in one of those cities? Well, it all depends what you're doing. Well, for instance, you know, live music venues are not as commonplace as they once were. And also, just significantly enough, you know, culturally, uh, a lot of uh, other areas of the country, uh, for example, Austin, Texas, became real hubs for music, you know, and uh, Mm -hmm. the South by Southwest Festival, uh, you know, things kind of moved on from from New York, L.A. Uh, For myself, I to get to do quite a few things that I wouldn't be doing if I wasn't in LA over the years, you know, whether it's working with working and recording with Nancy Sinatra or or doing, you know, various sessions, 
I just did a session with uh, Shell Talmy, which is going back a ways. You know, he produced the Kinks and the Who, and mm-hmm. I just—he's based in L.A. And uh, I did a I got a call to do a session with this guy Vince Mullaney, who was, believe it or not, was the uh, original guitar player in the Bee Gees, the Bee Gees before they went disco. Oh and, wow! Yeah, so I did a session with him, with with Shell producing and. Uh, a lot of things like that have come up along the way. I'm, I'm trying to think. Uh, I mean, L.A., you know, there was a lot of studios here. And, and just the history of it, my good friend Don Randy has the the Baked Potato Club, but, mm-hmm. you know, that I would really like going to. And But I think, I don't know. if It's it's obviously with the Internet, you could be anywhere. And this is it's more obvious than ever now. Right. Um, it all depends what kind of music you make. I mean, I'm a, I'm a person who plays in a rock and roll band. It's almost, it's very kind of an anachronistic, uh, situation to be in, even being a drummer, for instance, you know, but, uh, what I do involves other people and it involves what I love to do is, is, is play live. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, this empty hearts record, we made it in Rochester, New York at the bass player, Andy Babuke's studio. Mm-hmm. We, we all basically congregated there. I mean, uh, Elliot Easton and I spend most of our time in Los Angeles, and Wally Palmer, our singer, is uh, based in Detroit, and so he, that's not as far away. It's still in the Midwest. But uh, also, we have the ways and means of doing that now, as we uh, obviously had some success along the way, and we're not kids anymore, so right. we, we can travel around. But... Um, I don't really know. I mean, especially now, it's hard to say. For sure. You know, sure. Uh, yeah. as, as far as a thriving scene, I mean, so many clubs and venues are kind of like going out of business or it remains to be seen what's going to actually happen. Yeah. Uh, but no, I guess you, you really don't, though. I mean, you, I mean, just you put your music out on, on the net. I mean, I think A&R guys, for what it's worth, they just can sit in their bedroom and turn the computer on and then oh i wonder what this band's like or what's going on with this and just you know yeah you don't really have to be so hands-on obviously which i think is also a disservice to bands that are primarily live acts and that that really thrive in a live situation and don't necessarily translate to tape you know or nobody uses tape but you know what i mean to to a cd or a youtube video or something like that yeah, well, I mean, I think in the old days, a lot of time, uh, A&R guys, all they would simply have to do was hear about a band and they could go to a, a venue. And if the venue was, let's say it's a local band, but they have a following, it, people are responding. I mean, that really is a big part of the equation. You know, the live performance, the, the band's playing, it's crowded, people like it. If one person likes it, there's going to be another person that's going to like it. Maybe that sort of uh, attitude but no, now it's, I mean, it's, everything's changed now. I mean, mm-hmm. Who knows what's going to be, you know, I mean, I, I have a, we have a tour booked with Blondie for uh, November, 2021 and a tour in the UK that we're holding the dates, but I don't really know, you know, I mean, right now we were going to be out on tour with uh, just finishing up a Blondie tour and I was going right into this uh, sort of a, a club promo tour for this uh, Empty Hearts record. But, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, actually, you know, social distancing doesn't really work, you know, if you're talking about live performance. You know, no, it doesn't. I mean, if you look at 
I mean, I look at like watching like the Woodstock movie or something like that. And when you're thinking about the state of the world today, it's like, will this ever be like this again? I know. Or is that many people? I mean, eventually everything uh, will come to pass, but I mean, I don't know if it's going to happen overnight. So I'm optimistic that it will. And and I'm optimistic that there's a lot of pent up excitement and energy to want to go out and see live music and, and be around people and, and, you know, hug and have a good time and, and all of that. So I, I'm optimistic that it will come back, but I think you're right. It's not going to be next month. Right. No, you got to be optimistic. I mean, eventually it, it will, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, you got to be optimistic. But to, to get back to your question at this point, no, you don't have to be in New York or LA to, to, to be in a band or to, be, or to make music, obviously. I mean, I, obviously I've, I've recorded to files, uh, you know, many times in the last few years. I just, I did a record with somebody in France and, uh, you know, from time to time, I would do sessions, you know, just uh, with an engineer and myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's that's what people do. I mean, I, I, most drummers have studios set up where they can do that. Right. You know, and what's your what's your take on that being that you grew up or came up through the heyday of the music industry? You're recording on tape and, you know, your influences are Hal Blaine and Keith Moon and Ringo Starr and Earl Palmer. And you have all these these people who are recording in, in studio settings and you are a product of that environment as well. What's your take on the way that things are recorded now? Do you like it? Do you dislike it? Do you, are you okay with it? Well, I, I like being in the recording studio. I, I always did. I mean, getting back to that day that I recorded with my high school band. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I, I mean, I wasn't really, I mean, there's some trepidation and some excitement, but I, uh, really enjoy the the studio environment so you know just recording on my own to files it's almost like i'm producing the drum track myself because sometimes you're not really getting the input you just kind of send it in and uh mm-hmm. what people think and you go back and go back and forth that way of course you can do zoom and all that you know right but i i enjoy being in the studio so whatever i mean i before the files thing i mean I've, I've gone into studios and just overdubbed drums on existing tracks and, you know, things like that. And, uh, I, I really enjoy being in the studio in general. So uh, whatever shape or form that, that takes to, in order for me to uh, play the drums, uh, it's, I'm fine with, with all of that. Um, I just did a, a record with a band called, uh, Echo and the Bunnymen. You probably heard of. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I got a call from them back in October <clears throat> And for the most part, you know, the tracks were recorded and I just went in and overdubbed the drums to their tracks already. And, <clears throat> but I mean, I prefer that having band members there and, and so we can inter- interchange, uh, exchange ideas. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's one way of doing it. I mean, that's a, kind of a, a lot of times, I mean, I think back when it was kind of like a novelty to do something like that, but, it, but that's more commonplace now too. But, you know, with the empty hearts, we're, we're almost an anachronism. I mean, and, you know, I mean, we, what, the way we record is like the way we recorded back in the day, which is really what this band is about, playing live and being in the studio together and, and exchanging ideas and doing arrangements. And I feel as though there's probably not that many bands like the empty hearts out there nowadays. And, and ironically, the whole band was founded on the idea of playing live. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we were lucky enough to be able to do this second record with uh, with Stephen Van Sant's label. So um, <clears throat> I was listening back to the our previous record, which was on a 
different label, uh, 429, a universal music group label. And uh, I was listening to the both albums on, you know, shuffling the songs. And uh, we have quite a repertoire of songs now. And uh, we can put on a really great live show, but at the moment that's not possible. But the bottom line for the for the band was to, to the muse being get back to the feeling that you had the first time you sat behind the drums, the first time you picked up a guitar, right? You know, the excitement and uh, kind of <clears throat> be that your that's your kind of inspiration, you know. Then that's the inspiration for the band. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. And that's how we recorded this record. And we have a great uh, producer, co-producer engineer, Ed Stasium, who's produced a lot of great records. Did that uh, Cult of Personality for Living Color. That oh, nice. Did, did a bunch of Ramones a records. Great record. Yeah, he did some Ramones, you know, Ramones records, Talking Heads, uh, Smithereens. <clears throat> His first session, professional session as an engineer, was he engineered the song Midnight Train to Georgia by Oh, uh, yeah. Pips. But Ed has quite a history, and it was it's a joy to work with him. And he's very, very well placed and figures in the studio, and it's a major help, you know. One line in the Dream Symbol family that I think is really cool is the Dark Matter family. They have the Flat Earth, the Moon Ride, and the Dark Matter Energy. And although they're all made a little bit differently, they all involve the Dark Matter process. And this is really cool. Check this out. They take a symbol that is already finished and then put it back in the oven, hand hammer it, and then shock it with cold water, and then put it back in the oven. And what happens is the ash and the soot from the oven are fused to the top layer of the metal, which give it this really, really unique sound. And you know what? I want to let you hear exactly what this process does to a symbol. Check them out. To learn more about Dream Symbols, their Dark Matter line, and all their great products, be sure to check out DreamSymbols.com. It's an interesting perspective that you brought up about not being in the room with other people, whether it be a producer or an engineer or the rest of the band that you can feed off of and toss around ideas. And I've admittedly never recorded without a band or without people in the room with me to to collaborate with. And I have to imagine that it's it's got to be a little tricky to just go in and do it on your own and and create a vibe yourself. Right. Well, I mean, you kind of chart out this, where the song's going. I mean, if it's something, just a song that you're not really familiar with, if you're just doing a session, you make a little roadmap. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you just, it's definitely different. I mean, you're mm-hmm. going to get feedback from, uh, hopefully, from, uh, from the, the other people that you're working with, whether it be just the engineer in the studio or whatever. But, uh, yeah, it's a different type of thing. You know, it's a different type of thing. I mean, the, the whole digital world of recording is completely, you know, change the way things are done anyway i mean it was so when it's so funny when you think back to people saying oh no i will never go to digital way i mean i'm an analog guy and you know there's no point anymore to that you know right. so digital it's a digital world obviously and it's going to get converted to digital anyway so <laughs> uh, i mean if yeah if yeah they, they record the tape and then they put send the tape through digital through pro tools and all that yeah yeah but uh i mean i'm I just try to be open-minded in general if I'm uh, on a session or if I'm working with other musicians. I mean, the, the Blondie 
whole thing is a best example of that. I mean, some of the ideas, you know, at the time were not particularly ones that I came up with, but I you know I followed uh, the path that was laid out for me, and I, you know, I had an open mind to do something like Rapture or just something like Heart of Glass, which was atypical at the time for what the, the band did and what the scene that we came out of in New York, you know, I mean, essentially a rock and roll band. But uh, you have to be open-minded and uh, be able to, uh, you know, put your stamp on things. I think that's why I get called to do whatever I do with different bands and musicians over the years. I People mm -hmm. recognize I have a certain style that that they like and uh i was gonna ask that are you getting hired for the clem burke sound is that what they're or, is that what they're looking for yeah i mean for the most part i think people or my or the fact that i've had a lot of success commercially as far as the tracks that i've played on whether it be uh you know with your rhythmics i recorded a lot of stuff with them and missionary man or obviously the blondie stuff we had a lot of commercial success and uh you know, and then a lot of times people see me play and like with Nancy Sinatra, she came to see Blondie and then right afterwards she asked me if I would record with her, play with her. And then I got to know, uh, you know, Don Randy, who was a member of the Wrecking Crew along with Hal. I got to meet Hal Blaine through through, through uh, him and uh, through Don. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, I think... That's kind of my reputation precedes me for better or worse, you know, and uh, usually that's how it goes. I yeah. mean, I heard audition when I was a kid. I auditioned. I remember I auditioned for LaBelle. Mm -hmm. LaBelle. And uh, I think I did a couple other auditions back when, you know, at the time, you know, the, the back of the Village Voice. I mean, famously, that's where I saw the ad. That was placed by like by, by Debbie and Chris from from Blondie, but uh, I had already known who they were, so I kind of had a little bit of insight into what I was getting involved in. But were they making some noise at the time when they were looking for a new drummer? Well, no, they had a previous band called the Stilettos, and uh, no, I mean it was all very, uh, you know, very. Early very early on and there was no major deal or anything but i, I mean i've said this many times before as a drummer i i did want to have i wanted to be a rock and roll star you know i, I wanted to be a pop star it wasn't mm -hmm. just about being a musician i, I had a, a vision you know that kind of began with obviously with with ringo star the beatles were like four rock and roll stars you know they all stood out you know it was mm -hmm. that was kind of obviously with keith moon and but I also knew that I had to have find someone to front the band that had, you know, the, the, the charisma, the power. I mean, I was very influenced by David Bowie and, mm -hmm. um, you know, I wanted my Bowie, my Mick Jagger, my Jim Morrison, you know, I mean, and, you know, when I met the Debbie, obviously I sensed her charisma and her style and her creativity and it just turned out that the strong front person I was looking for was, was a woman, you know, so mm -hmm. I never really had a problem with people identifying the front person, I mean, that's gone on, you know, before, but it made it even more so different because of her being a woman. But this lead singer is always going to stand out in a band. And, and, you know, I accept that. But I also right. wanted to make a name for myself as a drummer. I felt a bit like a gunslinger, you know, at the time. Mm -hmm. Like, this is my shot, sort of, as things progressed. And, 
you know, I don't know where I was going with this, but anyway. Well, we were talking about uh, about you meeting up with them, finding you know finding the ad, starting with the band, and you had these dreams of of being you wanted to be a pop star, you wanted to be a rock and roll star, which is to me is so interesting. Knowing you know, knowing now that you're in the rock and roll hall of fame, like what does if you told you know fourteen or fifteen year old your fourteen or fifteen year old self like, hey, you are going to achieve this, and you are you're going to end up in the rock and roll hall of fame. Like, was that even something that you could fathom at the time? Well, there was no rock and roll. Well, at the time, yeah, there was no rock well, and roll. <laughs> no, I was, I was determined. You know, I was very much determined. I mean, I had obviously many other friends that were musicians and people that, you know, were better drummers than me at the time. And But a lot of those people would just be in their, you know, in their bedrooms or in their garages, just like constantly practicing and, you know, they're – just just improving their chops, but not really improving their minds as far as what it's like to be out in front of an audience and performing, you know? And I think people mm-hmm. would get hit inhibited by that. I always tell younger musicians, you know, get out and if you're, if you're trying to do this, like a rock and roll band or whatever, whatever you're trying to do, get out and play in front of people and uh, get that experience early on. So uh, if the time comes when you are, you know, playing in front of large crowds, you'll feel at ease and you know, that's something that's developed over time. Uh, the sooner you start doing it, uh, the easier it becomes and you kind of thrive on it after a while. But uh, as I said, there's a lot of people that would just be uh, more interested in just playing in their bedrooms and their garages and not really going out and playing. I mean, the thing with myself, I mean, I had, you know, going back to the band that I had, I mean, I, I had two bands when I was a kid, when I was in high school, I had a band my first two years of high school band the second two years of high school and uh I, but we were always out playing whether it be like the battle of the bands or playing at cyo centers or at jewish community centers or parties or shopping malls and i think that experience really uh, helped me a lot you know to able to achieve what i was trying to achieve um you know, early on, I mean, I was like 20 or 21 when we had the started to have a big success with Blondie and uh, I was prepared for it. And uh, but, you know, keeping a group together and all the pitfalls of success and all that kind of makes for a rocky road sometimes. But yeah. uh, and I, you were and you were sort of the the sort of the mediator in the whole situation, right? Keeping every sort of keeping everyone together, making sure that that uh, cooler heads prevailed. Well, I mean, it's been written that yeah. way. Um, I, you know, when I had first met uh, with Debbie and that and Chris and, uh, you know, the band was falling apart. Uh, the bass player left right after my first gig with them. And I was able to uh, convince them to bring another friend of mine in from, from school to play bass and uh, kind of carry on from there. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's been times when, Things got a little darker that I kind of prevailed, I think, in a lot of ways, because I was I was always optimistic about making music. And, uh, you know, it was never about the money. It was more about the camaraderie and about the music and about just moving forward, you know, uh, as incrementally as that could be. It was just, you know, just as long as there was some kind of forward motion going on. Right. Of course, you know, having being based in that whole New York City metro area was a big help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what do you think about 
what do you think it is about bands that become famous always have these problems internal? I mean, it, it, it's like the, it's the story, right? A band starts out and they're all friends and then they start to get some sort of fame or success. And as they get bigger, then the problems happen and then they break and we see it all the time. They break up or, or stop playing for a decade or don't talk to each other anymore. And you, do you think it's that fame messes with your head or do you think that it's, it's just egos get in the way or a combination of both? Well, I always tell younger musicians if they're in a, a band situation to easier said than done, but have the business end of it kind of together where you kind of know where you stand, because I think that's a, a big downfall of a lot of, uh, musicians they uh everybody's in it together until there's a bit of money and right yeah you start sliding checks across the table people start getting that kind of stuff and it's better to know where you stand early on and and, because you know once once the success comes and the money comes quite a few things can change very rapidly so uh i think also uh to have a a good team a, a good manager which uh, ironically, we had a really good manager in Blondie that some people began to not like, and and unfortunately he left. And to this day, I, I credit him, guy called Peter Leeds. I, I credit him with a a large amount of our success in mm. uh, early days. And uh, some people didn't see it that way. And uh, <clears throat> the thing with Blondie was we were so darn successful that we all managed to come out of it okay at the end right. you know but i think if we had been minimally successful it would have been a different story for a lot of people in the band and uh that's kind of how that all played out and uh you know our success was 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 really mega for a very short time and and i always say you know you don't get a you don't get a, a manual you don't get a handbook on on success you know back especially back then and uh you know, you can't really uh, you kind of have to figure a lot of things out for yourself in some ways. Now it's a lot different, you know. Sure. I mean, I'm sure it felt like you're trying to ride a rocket ship, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now you know you can Google everything, but I mean, just for me, everything was going according to plan. You know, I was like, right. I was like very happy, but I was determined from the time I was young to to to, to try to, to be a success in the music business as far as you know what I wanted to achieve. I didn't really know exactly what that would be, but I knew I wanted to be in a successful rock and roll band. It was my kind of mandate at the time. So, right. I mean, right. and obviously we kind of slipped in uh, through uh, the back door in a lot of ways, you know, from like the underground scene into becoming such a commercial success and then going away for a long time and then coming back and, having a lot of success as far as a, a live uh, band and, mm-hmm. you know, doing a lot of great things and getting a lot of awards that <clears throat> you, like you said, I would never have imagined back in the day. I mean, got all kinds of awards from the, in the UK for Blondie and, you know, it's great, but that's the foundation that my, my life was kind of based on and it enabled me to do things as even now with the empty hearts, like the, the first, uh, thing was the first thing of interest was the music it wasn't like you know the money or anything like that it's not like sure you know we, we wanted to brand the band as a live performance band and kind of go from there and because we enjoyed playing together so much and 
with with the other bands I've been involved in, and with with Blondie, we don't play out as much as I would have liked to have. Um, there's sometimes there's not a need financially to do that, so people choose not to do that. Right. I thrive on that, so I'll go and play, obviously, just to play for free. And mm-hmm. people, people say, "Oh, wow!" You know, I mean, it's funny because people go, "Well, you will always have a gig," and I'm like, "Yeah." Sure, as long as I don't want to get paid, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone can play for free, right? <laughs> no, but but yeah, I mean, I mean Earl Palmer, let the drummer Earl Palmer, you know, the last ten years of his life, he would play at this uh, club in Los Angeles. It was actually a, like a restaurant chat called Chadney's across from NBC, and uh, I, you know, was aware of Earl. But one day, uh, a friend of mine said to, to me, have you ever heard of the drummer Earl Palmer? I'm like, yeah. And it's like, well, you know, he plays every Tuesday night at this bar. I'm like, oh, wow, really? So, you know, I began going down there and I met Earl and, you know, just his joy of being in that environment and kind of also he was a, a great mentor to people. He would begin the night and play the first set and then other people would come up and play. I, and sometimes it'd be people like Peter Erskine sitting in with, with Earl's band or Carol Kay playing jazz guitar. And uh, one time I was down there and uh, I was sitting at a table watching Earl and then in walked both uh, Jim Keltner and Charlie Watts together. Wow. And they sat, you know, of course, when you watch a drummer, the best way to watch a drummer is from the side. So you can mm-hmm. see what actually doing. You don't really see what a drummer is doing from looking at front straight on. So I had a vision of Earl set up playing his drums with Charlie right next to him, next to Jim Keltner, both like kind of sitting sideways watching Earl. And, uh, you know, obviously Earl was just playing for the love of playing and, and, you know, bringing in all these different younger musicians. And I really learned a lot from being around him in that way about just his joy of, of, of playing music and, uh, you know the things that come from that you know the good things mm-hmm. that come from it and he was such a gentleman and uh you know just watching him play it was like you know you can learn so much i mean that's the whole other thing about live performance that people are missing out on now is because you get inspired by another musician i mean actors get inspired by other actors painters get inspired by other painters musicians get inspired by other musicians and the best way to do that is to see a musician play live and uh, so it was a great uh, thing for me to be able to watch Earl play every Tuesday night for a good, good, good number of years. I, I can't at, even imagine being able to go see him every Tuesday night. Yeah, I was at a retirement party. It was at a move to a different uh, jazz club. I can't remember the name of it now because that place, the place that he had been playing originally had closed down. And uh, Earl played with such ferocity. That night of his retirement party, he was due to do his second set, but they wound up carrying him out of the club and taking him to the hospital in between sets. Really? Yeah, because he was really, really going for it. You know, you, I mean, he was okay after that, but he, uh, they had to take him for oxygen or something. It was pretty. Wow. Was How old was he? What's that? How old was he? Well, I, you know, I think he died. He was in his mid eighties. I mean, I went to the funeral and, you know. Right. He was quite a quite a man, and I'm glad I got to know him. You know, he has. I think Jim Keltner helped him with the, his book. There's a book that Earl wrote, and mm-hmm. 
you know, I think the Smithsonian put it out. And then, you know, um, I don't know where I was going with this, but I also got to, you know, spend time with Hal. I actually played at Hal's, I think at his, when Hal passed away, it was just a little while ago. I think it was his 80th. He played at, he was at his 80th birthday party. Mm-hmm. But I, I played at his 70th. I played Be My Baby at, in front of Hal at his 70th birthday party. Awesome. Yeah. And so I got to be around Hal too. And, and you know, the whole thing is those guys are the guys that influenced Charlie Watts and Ringo Starr. And For sure. So many others, you know, they were uncredited for the most part. So, I mean, they influenced me. They were playing on these records that I was listening to, you know, before I went to school in the morning on Top 40 radio, you know, but mm-hmm. they weren't credited, but they were playing it. The Monkees, the Beach Boys, uh, all the Phil Spector stuff, you know, and, you know, we're all played on the, the Eddie Cochran stuff. And, yeah. And then all the Fats Domino, Little Richard. Ironically, he didn't play drums on Keep a Knocking. Which you know the John Bonham intro to Led Zeppelin Rock and Roll is based on that. Yep, yep. But uh, I forget the guy's name. But I, I met him. When and he, which and that was based on something too. Yeah, probably. Well, it's probably New, just the whole New Orleans. Yeah. In general, you know. Yep. But uh, yeah. Man, so, yeah, I'm the, jealous about I'm jealous about the uh, about the old problem. So what about so what about learning from? Or what did you learn from someone like a Hal Blaine or someone like an Earl Palmer? Is there things that stick out to you that that influenced the way that you approach things or the way that you play or something like that that you can that that you can pass on to people? Well, really listen to. I mean, they were playing on a lot of commercial hit records, you know, but they also had a style. They added to the to the song, you know. They added to the track, especially you know when you think of Hal playing all those great fills at the end of all these Spectre records where they supposedly Spectre would tell how to hold back until the very end and then just kind of go, go wild on the drums at the end a lot of times, but really being able to put your stamp on a, on a track and yet be it a part of the glue of of the song and of the whole vibe of, of, the recording you know and mm-hmm. bringing an energy to it i mean when you think of all the it's the fats domino stuff and the little richard stuff that are all played on i just amazing and it's funny because they were both you know they were jazz drummers yep you know yep. I, they kind of really their work ethic pretty interesting you know mm-hmm. i just was at the uh i get to go and i go when i'm in cleveland if i'm with a with a band of Doing a gig somewhere, I usually uh, go in the back door of the Hall of Fame, and you know they let me kind of roam around in the archives and that. And the last time I was there, uh, you know, there's a, there's an amazing library archive in a separate building in Cleveland. So uh, I was playing with this band called the Split Squad that I play with, uh, and the, the keyboard player is a he's the house he's the, well he's the resident organist at Fenway for the for the Awesome for the Sox, right? For the Red Sox, but his, his I'm a Phillies fan, but that's still pretty cool. <laughs> uh, well, he's got a he's got a World Series ring. He's, he's been doing it for over ten years. That's he's amazing. Actually, been doing a a, a website broadcast uh, playing uh, when season had you know was canceled. Mm-hmm. Play every day at four o'clock and and play requests like he was playing in the from his house. You know, that's but, cool. Uh, 
his, interestingly enough, it's a guy called Josh Cantor, and his his day job is he's a, a music librarian at Harvard. Mm. Oh, so uh, he and I went over to the uh, the archives building with uh, some people from the Hall of Fame, and you know, one thing that they had there is all of Hal Blaine's diaries, date date books, you know, from back in the day. So they were all. They weren't on display. They were they were stored, but you know they knew that I would be interested in that. So I got to look through his books and his phone books. You know, with you know everyone, Glenn Campbell's phone number, George Harrison's phone, and Phil Spector's phone number, and then wow. his dates, you know, all his session dates, which sometimes would be as much as three three in a day, three or four in one day. So it was amazing to be able to look through that stuff, and and you see what such a work ethic, you know, and and as I said, Earl. The same. I mean, Earl is the one that kind of brought Hal into uh, into the whole session scene in L.A. As, as I mm-hmm. understand it, he was there a bit earlier. And then you know, just learning, you know, that it's it's a it's a progression. You know, it's you could be playing to eighty thousand people, or you could be playing to eight people. It's still about playing music. You know. Yeah, yeah, man, that's that's cool that you got to go see all that stuff in in uh, in Cleveland. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, they have a. They have quite a collection. They have like people's record collections, like 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 Lester Critic Lester Bang's record collection or like like Jan Werner, the you know, the owner of Rolling Stone, his record mm-hmm. and that's got- What do they do with them? Do they swap them in and out at the at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Well, it's like a library, it's it's archived if you're doing research and then they have a room that has every Is it open to the public? The the museum the the, the art the library is open to the public, yeah. But they I have, not they have so much stuff. I mean, they have every you know book written about news about rock and roll, and you know you could stay in there for you know forever if you care about that kind of stuff. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty amazing, and uh, you know that's the kind of stuff that that interests me a lot. It was funny. Yeah. I remember early on. At uh, first off, I never really thought I would get in the rock and roll hall of fame once the rock and roll hall of fame came to came to be and uh i remember one time i there's a ironically next to the rock and roll hall of fame there's a there's an airport called the burke airport hmm. and i was doing a gig there with the romantics and uh it was like you know they were using that space at the airport for like a festival or something and i remember they were building the hall of fame at the time and uh, after the gig, I kind of just was walking out. And I, I remember I had a, like a beer I was drinking. And I got to the foundation uh, of where the building was. And I, I threw the beer bottle into the building site. And I, I kind of said to myself, that's probably the closest I'll ever get to being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't work out that way. It worked out much, much better. And it was a very bittersweet evening for me because, you know, I was all about how great it was to be inducted. And it was a lot of acrimony from uh, some of my fellow partners, band members due to the, the ex members, which I was delighted about that everyone was inducted and, you know, all of that, but that's yeah. a story. That's awesome though. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff's happened. So and, speaking of interesting stuff, I, I remember reading that you did this like eight year study where they were they were tracking the physical effects of of drumming over the course of your shows right right yeah 
So what was, how did, how did that whole thing come about? Well, there's a guy called uh, Dr. Marcus Smith at uh, Chichester University on the South Coast in the UK, who was uh, a Blondie fan. He's about 10 years younger than me. And uh, he was also, uh, he's a professor at the university and uh, he's a sports medicine doctor. And he was also a, a coach for the, the UK uh, Olympic boxing team. So he wrote me a letter when I was playing at uh, Wembley Arena. I managed to hook up with him. And, uh, you know, he wanted to make the analogy between basically between drumming and sport, which mm -hmm. makes total sense because it really is you're using your entire body. It's a form of exercise. You know, my standard quote is there's a lot more to it than having a beer and walking on stage. Right. So, you know, so, um, you know, it was going to be like more like a, just a one off thing. You know, he said, would he explain to me what he wanted to do? He said, you know, he can bring some apparatus. He wire me up, you know, heart, heart monitor, oxygen, check oxygen rate with little blood pricks and things like that. So I, I understood what he was, where he was coming from. So I, I said, yeah, sure. Let's, let's try it. And, uh, little did we know. You know, with the success of, of Blondie getting back together, um, he was able to uh, experiment over and over again, which is, I guess that's what science is about, you know, repetition of trying to, he came up with a thesis, and uh, it's really a study of the mind and body, and uh, we uh, do some, in the past we did some uh, seminars on autism and things like that. I'm basically the namesake of it, the Clembert drumming project, it's called. But, but it was, they were able to uh, really expand on the, the research. So it's, uh, it's still ongoing. It's still ongoing. That's really cool. What, are, was there anything that they found that was, that was eye-opening or, or that you weren't expected to, to hear? Well, I mean, the heart rate's you know, they, they, they were making the announcement, like, when you think of a boxer, I mean, it's a good uh, comparison, you know, the, the boxers in the ring, you know, and, and in between, in between rounds, you know, you got to think, you know, you're, you're at your peak heart rate, you're in the ring, you know, boxing, then you're sitting down, and, and the fitness element that involved with that sort of like, you know, the seesaw effect of, of your heart rate going up and down, and uh, you have to be you know, fit to be able to do that because yeah. otherwise you're really pushing your heart. So, uh, you know, they measure my heart rate. I can't really quote the statistics, but it turned out, you know, that I was very, uh, very fit in that regard as far as, uh, you know, he would document each song, some songs like a Blondie song, Dreaming is a much more aggressive song and then some more mid-tempo songs and they, they, they grafted the, the, the heart rates and, oxygen levels and you know all that kind of stuff it's all real academic i i just you know once i met uh dr smith and i saw how keen he was on trying to do this they're they're trying to do other breakthroughs they get grants and you know like i got them some drums from dw and they have a lab and it's and also he uh, just on a personal level for me he he documents quite a bit of stuff that I do when I'm in the UK mm. got like loads and loads of loads of footage when I'm, I just did, you know, 
right in, before in October, you know, I, I, a lot of people think it's crazy, but I was playing with a Blondie tribute band in the UK. Huh. You know about that, but the friends of mine that I met 10 plus years ago, uh, the woman, Debbie, her name is Debbie Harris, but for real. And, uh, hmm. she, uh, <clears throat> she has some, uh, aunts, that live in the States. And I think our aunt was in like Mary Poppins or something and all this kind of showbiz stuff. So they became friends of mine from coming to Blondie shows. And they asked me to sign a bass drum head one time that they used in the show. So uh, I was over in England a couple of years ago at Christmas time. And I, I went to see them play at a, at like a rec room for like a, a, a you know, football for a soccer team. And, uh, you know, there was a couple hundred people there you know, uh, just hanging out and, uh, you know, I had a couple of beers in between. I said, you know, would you want to get up and play, you know, a couple of songs? So I did that. And mm -hmm. They got a, you know, now with the internet, you know, just they, that went online and it kind of enhanced their reputation that they actually had a member of Blondie performing with them. And, uh, so little time went on and they asked, uh, would I be willing to, come over and be like a special guest and kind of do the, like kind of pop up in the middle of their show and play a song. And so I said, well, you know what? Because they, they use various musicians and it's not, it's just two people. And then they, and everyone's reading charts and all that. So Guy. I, uh, I said, well, why don't I just do a little tour with you guys for fun? So, uh, they said, okay. So, I expected to be playing at the same sort of places where I had first seen them play in like a, you know, like a, on a Saturday night in a, in a rec room somewhere. So all of a sudden their agent gets a hold of it. And, uh, the second gig was at a place called Shepherd's Bush empire in London, which is, uh, a big gig, relatively big gig, but about 3000 people, which we, we huh. played with Blondie there. And I'm wow. like, I go, I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. This is what we're going to do. I mean, it was like the second gig. We played in a furniture store, the, the first gig. <laughs> it was interesting that they had like a coffee bar. And it's a big jump. They turned it. It's in like an old uh, country house. So they, they moved the, some of the furniture and they turned it into like a, a live music venue. And lots of people have played there. I, like the members of the zombies, all kinds of. In England, you know, they, they look at musicians in a different way. You know, it's, it's almost more legitimized. If you don't have to necessarily be in the you know, top 10 having hit records, you know, you're, you're recognized for your, your musicianship and your, your reputation. And, you know, people take it seriously. It's really sad what's happened now, you know, cause there, I got, came to know so many great venues and so many great owners of all these real music venues that are all over the UK, uh, that I didn't really know about particularly cause that weren't the type of places that we would play with Blondie, for instance. And I, I was familiar with like various like rock clubs, mm. It got a lot deeper than that. So yeah. anyway, basically, with the whole tour was sold out, and uh, it was really, really enjoyable for me because I kind of curated uh, a lot of the music because I did. We did a lot of songs that we don't normally do with with the real legitimate Blondie. So, yeah. and I, I donated the money to a homeless shelter. I actually, we actually did two or three tours, and we <laughs> the last thing we did in October was we we, we went on a cruise from uh, Southampton in the UK to uh, Calais in France, like a nice. three-day cruise. And it was like 
I mean, I, this is the kind of stuff I let myself in for, but I, I kind of really like it. It was like with all these these people, like I don't know if you ever hear, heard of like Bucks Fizz, which is like a band, like this win, like a like a second rate <clears throat> ABBA or something, or no singer from uh, Spandau Ballet, Tony Hadley, who's an amazing singer, and he got up and did a song with us. But we're on this cruise ship, you know, like they have those rock and roll cruises. Yeah, yeah, of course. But this was fun because it was all people from the UK and they're on this boat and. So we had a couple of good, really good gigs on the boat, and I, it's helped them. There's probably got to be at least a dozen Blondie tribute bands in the UK, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah. it, it really helped them uh, increase their sort of uh, their cachet by having an actual member of the band play. And uh, right now, I'm been, been working on a rock opera, opera about London with with them. Uh, really. Original, original music that, uh, yeah, we came up with this idea about uh, writing about various, various parts of London. Uh, you know, it's like it was a, like a second home for me for for a very long time. I, I spent large amounts of time there over the years, <clears throat> and the the, the guy that's in that the tribute band, Andy Harris, he's a legitimate Cockney, so he's got a real uh, swagger about him and a lot of history of uh you know, they're, they're quite a bit younger than me but they're they've come up with some really great stuff that hopefully i'm going to get to record with them whether it's going to be through files i would rather be in the studio with them so yeah that's amazing though and and i i love the fact that you that you donated it to to charity so it's a lot of people are having a great time and then there's a lot of people who are benefiting from from the money as well so that's yeah i mean and the, the turnout i mean like i couldn't believe the gigs that we were doing like there was, you know, it was, like, it was a lot of, there's like all these like sort of, uh, you know, government funded venues as well around the mm-hmm. country, uh, that are really, really, really nice arts, cultural centers. And we were playing places like that. And it was like so, uh, much fun. Cause you know, we'd be in the van and like, well, I wonder what it's going to be like tonight, you know? And then somebody would say, Oh, don't you know, it's sold out. Like most of the shows were sold out, you know, thousand people, 500 people, and then, you know, I would do the meet and greets just for the hell of it. And right. you know, we, I got to really interact with, the, you know, a lot of the fans from, you know, they didn't really think people really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed it. And, you know, you can make of it what you will. But it was just once again, it was just about playing music. And, you know, I think that's amazing. I yeah, think it is. Yeah. I mean, some people said, you know, why the heck is he playing in a blondie? First off, we hadn't been to the UK for a couple of years already with 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 the legit Blondie, so I, I wanted to go back there and play music. And anyway, that's just another crazy thing that I've I've done. You know, yeah, I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome. Uh, so tell me about this new record that you have with the Empty Hearts. Right. Well, it's called the second album because uh, we had a record that came out about five years ago. Um, and you know, it was, it was pretty much well received, but it wasn't really, you know, I don't know how many people actually got to hear it. So we want to make people aware that there was some music before this one. And then also in the States, the Beatles records were, you know, came out in a different sequence than they did in the UK. I mean, you probably know that, but that first one that was on VJ was really the first Beatles record with please, please me and all that. Then it was right. The Meet the Beatles record, which when they were on Ed Sullivan, that's what people consider the first record in the States. But in England, it was called With the Beatles. But anyway, the Beatles had another record. Their second record was called the second album. 
So we took even here we're copying influences in the most mundane way from the Beatles. Okay, we'll put the album the second album. I like it. And uh, you know, we we get together in uh, Rochester, New York. The bass player Andy Babuke has a great studio there, and uh, he actually has a little uh, does he does lessons there. He has a music store as well, a guitar shop, a really high end guitar shop in Rochester. So it's really convenient and easy. The studio is right on the Erie Canal. So oh, cool. Yeah, so we congregate there and uh, with our, our co-producer, Ed Stasium. And uh, a lot of the songs kind of came out of, uh, you know, just kind of jams like you would do back in the day. And, uh, you know, we're not on a clock or anything like that. So it's really uh, a great user-friendly workplace for, for the mm -hmm. band. So we were able to go in there and, uh, you know, record basically live and uh you know create a lot of the music in in the studio while we were there and you know somebody would come up with a title or a riff or you know we, we all you know we, we we collaborate together on the writing and um you know and we made this rock and roll record that we're all really happy with and um we were lucky enough to uh have uh Stephen Vincent uh, sign us to a, a Wicked Cool label now. Awesome. And, uh, you know, he's a big proponent of, of rock and roll music. He has a little Stephen Underground Garage on, on satellite radio. And, yeah. And yeah. also, I, you know, I have a history with Stephen. I, I had a band right after Blondie called uh, Checkered Past with uh, a mem another member of Blondie, Nigel Harrison, and with Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols. And, few other people and we actually did a tour supporting little steven and his disciples of soul back when we were both on a emi america label so there's a history and andy has a history and wally with the romantics has a history with steven so it's great that we're on this label and uh we actually did a christmas record a, a few years ago and we were writing it with steven while he was on the on the phone Kind of listening to us and we're going back and forth the bridge should we go like this what about the strum break and all you that's know. cool yeah so he was just on speakerphone writing the song with us so we have a history with steven so it's very comfortable being on wicked cool and uh we just went into the studio and you know created this new record you know kind of out of thin air and uh and then of course uh I, my drums got wiped i talk about recording to track my drums got wiped on one song and Lo and behold, Ringo Starr plays on the on the album, plays on the one song called Remember Days Like These. So Ringo's, Ringo's a special guest on this Empty Hearts record. That's is, awesome. I play tambourine, do back awesome. vocals, and co-wrote the song. And Are uh, you friendly with, with Ringo? I um, did a thing with, with Ringo along with Jim Keltner and Trey Cool from from Green Day and mm -hmm. Pat Sorum from Guns N' Roses and and all kinds of people, I, I some actors. It was Ringo was doing a, he was the, the face of a fashion line one season for the designer, John Barbados. So we did some videos where Ringo's drums were set up and the whole idea was we people walk in and out of the frame and sit on the drums and play something and then Ringo would play something. So. I met him. Oh, I think I was that all like it was all black and white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, minute I briefly, minute briefly, but uh, it was funny because uh, 
seemed like automatically people would sit down at the kit and, you know, Ringo sitting there under, you know, under an umbrella in the sun and with his, with his juice. We had like a, a guy at the bar just making carrot juice and apple juice and all that. And, uh, inevitably people would sit down and I remember I sat down and started playing the, the drum solo from, uh, what, you know, what, from the weight, right. Carried away, you know, right. From Bobby Road. And then I remember Chad Smith sat down and he was playing the, uh, the drum riff to the Beatles song called tomorrow never knows that's on revolver. Mm-hmm. And, uh, all of a sudden Ringo gets up and goes, wait, stop. That's not how you do it. So then he sat down and showed Chad, the real way to do the, <laughs> nice. the Chad was using the, it's kind of like a, what would it be like, a, like an eighth note, like, you know, on, on the, on the four, on the tom. But anyway, you know, that song tomorrow never knows, but Ringo does it all, which I already kind of realized just all with his left hand, he's doing the grace notes and all that. Chad was using two hands to do it. So, huh. and, and so that was a moment, but as far as that goes, uh, Wally Palmer, the singer and the lead singer in the Empty Hearts was in the Ringo's All Star Band for a couple of seasons too. So. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah, so cool. there's a connection. I'm 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 really good friends with with Zach Starkey. You know Ringo's yep. song. Yeah, you know which he's got the dream gig with the Who. That, that yes, way. he does. Yes, he does. Great, great drummer. I, I've known him since he's like 16 years old. Actually, I met him in London, and he. Uh, I mean, since we're talking about interesting things that's why I, I was at the club ding walls and he came up to me and he said oh you're the you're drum this kid comes up and he goes you know you're the drummer right you're drummer in blondie i'm like yeah yeah how you doing you know and he goes and he goes me dad's a drummer i'm like oh yeah really who's that Goes, <laughs> well I'm like you know one thing led to another and i wound up going out to ringo's house with zach and setting up uh keith moon's drum kit that zach had the white drum kit from the from the last kits kits that Keith used and uh, oh man, got around playing Keith Moon's drums with Zach and he was like sixteen at the time. Huh. Yeah, that was quite a moment, you know. Yeah, like that. pretty cool. Did you, did you believe him when he's like my dad's Ringo Starr? Oh sure, sure. Yeah, I mean that was a beautiful thing. The great thing about being in London and being in a successful band, you cross paths with so many people. I mean, that's how I got my gig working with the uh, with. Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart with Eurythmics, you know, just by spending time in London and just being out and about mm-hmm. albums with them. And yeah, you know, cross pits with a lot of people like that. Sure. Do you know why when you tune a drum, you're supposed to go diagonal across the drum? That's because your drum is flawed. I hate to break it to you, but your drum is flawed because of the way that the edge is the typical edge doesn't allow the drum head to sit on it properly so when you tighten down one lug it causes the drum head to shift and pop up on the other side that's why you have to tune it diagonally but now with the new sonic clear edge from mapex that's a thing of the past the sonic clear edge allows the head to sit flush so it promotes ease of tuning increased shell resonance and optimal tonal clarity so you're going to have to do a lot less work and get a lot greater sound. To learn more about the Sonic Clear Edge, go to mapexdrums.com. Hey, are you tired of coated drumheads chipping and flaking after only a few hours of play? Tired of premature denning and breakage? Well, welcome to the next generation of coated drumheads, Evan's new UV coating technology. They're made with proprietary inks and a new UV-like curing process, so these heads are able to withstand strikes, brush strokes, and rim shots better than anything on earth. 
That means you get to play heads that sound and look fresh for longer, and you can spend less time tuning and modifying and changing heads. They're available in one-ply and two-ply, as well as Evans proprietary hydraulic and EMAD systems. Check them out by going to evansdrumheads.com. It's always interesting who you meet and you never know who you're going to run into or who's watching or who I think it's just an important lesson to learn or, or, or important thing to remember that you never know who someone is. Or I, w- I remember last year I was at the Super Bowl and I was talking to a guy, an older gentleman and, and, uh, I was, you know, I was feeling all proud of myself. He's like, what do you do? I said, Oh, I work at the music industry and everything. And, uh, and I said, what about you? And he's like, Oh, I'm a, I, I'm a real estate developer. And I said, Oh, okay. That's, that's amazing. And he goes, and I own the, the Miami dolphins. <laughs> And it turns out it's Stephen Ross. The guy's worth, you know, five billion or seven billion or something like that. It owns the owns. Uh, he's the biggest developer in the United States and owns the Miami Dolphins. You know, and I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, I, I feel pretty small yes, now. You had pretty good seats at the Super Bowl then. <laughs> I wasn't at. I was at a Super Bowl party that he oh, was. Super Bowl party. Uh, yeah, it was a. It was something that he was that, and he was actually getting honored at the party. That's why he was there. Oh wow! Yeah, we yeah. played. Uh, Party, Super Bowl party for the NFL the night before the Super Bowl. Uh, the only thing I remember it was the year that Prince played in the rain. Oh man! Yeah, that was. Did crazy. you see the? Did you get to see the the performance too? Well, my wife didn't want to go to the Super Bowl. I had total VIP everything, so we <sighs> were staying in a staying in a hotel where a Sports Center was or ESPN, ESPN mm-hmm. or whatever it was, and. It was like all this crazy notes everywhere, you know, tickets wanted, tickets wanted. So when it turned out my wife didn't want to go, I, I, I called up my, my tech. I go, you know what? Why don't you take these tickets and see what you can do with them? So he wound up uh, just hanging around the lobby, and I, I forget how much money he sold them for, you know. That's amazing. <laughs> I stayed in the hotel and watched Prince on TV. I'm not a big football fan so it didn't really i i would have went i was surprised my wife didn't want to go because you know we went to the to you know the events around the super bowl and we played with uh was blondie and ario speedwagon for the nfl party oh cool yeah yeah that was it was a good gig it was it was was interesting there was down there was you know raining and everything yeah i was gonna say what a what an amazing uh halftime performance that was yeah that may be one of the best you know Maybe one of the best of all time. I was a big, big Prince fan early on. I, I remember I, I had a record out in the early 80s and was going around to all these, at the time, you know, these AOR, album-oriented stations, or you know. And I every station I went to, I would be, are you playing any Prince? And they're like, oh, we don't play Prince, you know. And, you know, huh. like that before his real big breakthrough. I remember he played out in L.A. opening for the Stones, and they got they threw so much stuff at him. Really crazy, yeah. Because I'm oh, like Purple Rain was the peak for me because I was into like the Dirty Mind album and the, the Controversy album and all that stuff. Right. You know? But what? What? I guess the Stones fans just didn't like them. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, you know, came out in his raincoat and his underpants or whatever. Right. You know, I mean, there's that whole. Unfortunately, it's going on again in this country, you know, the whole thing that I thought we kind of passed over, the whole racism thing, too, you know. Yeah. I don't think that was part of it, but it's sad times with all that kind of stuff. It is for sure. I thought it we were way sure. past all that. So did I. 
Yeah. So did I. Yeah. The the inner I I always remember the story, and who knows if it's folklore, if it's real. But someone asked Eric Clapton. They said, "What's it? What's it like to be the best guitar player in the world?" And he said, "I don't know. Ask Prince." Yeah, could be. I mean, he was amazing. I yeah. saw uh, the sign of the time show at the in Paris at Palais de Omnisport, and I think actually that they just re released that album here. But I don't think that tour actually came to uh, the United States. It was Shirley E was playing drums, but that album, Sign of the Times, is, is an amazing album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, his, that whole thing he does uh, when he does My Guitar Gently Weeps at the Hall of Fame induction for George Harrison. Probably, yeah, and he throws his guitar at the end. Yeah, but he's, you know, he's, he's like going off in front of all these other musicians. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that is a that's a uh, a legendary performance. If people, if if you haven't seen it, just Google Prince while my guitar gently weeps. And who's I mean, uh, Clapton's on stage. Um, Petty, uh, Jeff Lynn, uh, George's son. Danny. Yeah, Petty's on there. George's son. Yep. I actually I met George a couple of times. I the only Beatle I never met was was John. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, but I I met I met Paul. Real early on in the Blondie days, and uh, George actually, uh, you know, he came to some gigs that I did with when I was playing with Eurythmics. Mm-hmm. We got to hang out a little bit, and uh, yeah, he was a great guy. That's got to be a trip, too, just, hang, just hanging yeah. out with the people from the Beatles. Yeah, the first time I met McCartney, it was like in 77. And we were about to go on tour in a, on a, in a van with, with Blondie. And uh, we, our manager was staying at this real posh hotel. And so we had to go and pick him up. And we're just like in this van staring at the front door of the hotel. It was called the, uh, um, um, uh, shit, I can't think of the name of the hotel. It was right by Marble Arch. I think they changed the name anyway. So all of a sudden the door opens and, you know, we're across the street in the van staring at the front door, and the door opens, and Paul and Linda walk out the front door. So uh, it's like myself and a couple of other members of the band. It's like, well, you know, this is it. We're going to have to go over there. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and then funny enough, you know, at the time, we were dressed in, you know, as which was kind of unusual at the time. You know, I had the black skinny suit on and the tie and the beat mm-hmm. cut and you know, walked up to Paul and introduced myself and told him about the band and all that. And he couldn't have been nicer at the time. And, and, you know, coincidentally on the parallel lines album, we, uh, it was song that he owns the publishing on a buddy Holly song. I'm going to love you too. So, uh, we would kind of, kind of, kind of got acknowledgements from Paul from the, about parallel lines and all that. So that's great. Yeah, that's great. You know, that kind of stuff really, but the, the high points, you know, that will yeah. meeting people like that on the, some kind of uh, not equal level, obviously, but uh, you know, you're, you're working or you're just in a place in, uh, where it's convenient to. The only person I always got a bad vibe from was the actress Lauren Bacall. I uh, was was in uh, Israel checking into this hotel in in Jerusalem, and uh, she was next to me checking in, and I, I kind of just casually tried to say hello, and I actually asked her for an autograph, and she turned me down. You know, Lauren Bacall, you know. I'm, I'm not from no i don't you don't know the actress lauren bacall i don't i don't know i'm so bad with actors and actresses names in, well she was married to humphrey bogart oh right 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 okay. yeah i'm trying to quote the films that she's been in but anyway she was she was an amazing woman 
<laughs> but very, but cold. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's how they are sometimes. Well, I'll tell you what, Clem. I I love the fact that you you dreamed all of this stuff up when you were a kid and and manifested it in your life, and you are living proof that if you work hard enough, you're a kind person. You keep your head down and and uh, and keep your dreams alive. That that you can achieve what you want. It's it's very important. I think that that people don't lose sight of the things that they really want to do. And no matter what age they are, that they should keep keep pushing and keep trying to do the things that really light them up inside. Yeah, it's important. It is important, you know, to be happy uh, in your life and when you work. You know, it's otherwise it's uh, kind of doesn't really make that much sense in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. What's the point without happiness for sure. So where can, where can people follow along with, with what you have going on with empty hearts or Blondie or anything else that you're, that you're doing? Well, the only social media that I'm on myself is my Twitter account. I, I okay. like Twitter. So they can, people can find me on Twitter, but of course, Blondie, the empty hearts, you know, just Google the, the names and, you know, there's Blondie sites, there's, there's the empty hearts, you know, Facebook, uh, Twitter and Instagram, all that stuff. Okay. I, I have an Instagram account I'm not very active on. I, I, I never really got into Facebook at all. There's a there's a woman that does a fan page for me on Facebook, uh, mm-hmm. Tina in Australia. She's great. But uh, if anybody wants to contact me, uh, you know, a message or something, Twitter's the best way. Okay. Okay. And I'll link up to that in the, uh, in oh, the show notes as well. All right. Well, Clem, thank you so very much. I really appreciate you taking all this time to chat and, and sharing sharing these amazing stories and these amazing nuggets for, for the listeners. I really do appreciate it. Okay, Nick. Great. And I hope everybody gets a chance to check out the new Empty Hearts second album. I will link up to that as well for sure so that people can okay. take a listen. Okay. Good deal. Clem, thank you again. I appreciate you. All right. Peace and love. Bye. There you have it, the one and only Clem Burke. And you can find the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 582. And if you haven't already, please leave a rating or a review for the podcast. I would appreciate it. That lets people know that the podcast exists, helps it show up higher in search results, blah, 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 blah. You've heard me say all this and you're still not leaving a rating or review. So help me out. Leave a rating, leave a review. I would appreciate it and it'll make you feel good. So you can do that on iTunes and it'll take you a minute. Other than that, that's all I got. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me, edited by Justin Thomas, video editing by Tomas Shannon, and graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.